Now let's go to the Word. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, briefly and eventually, if that makes any sense to you. Lord, as we come to Your Word, we ask for the help of Your Spirit who work through men of God and move them to write exactly what you intended. Lord, the the same Spirit who has preserved your Scripture in such a wonderful way. Spiritual things are spiritually understood. And so while we apply ourselves diligently to your Word, True understanding and faith only comes through you. So we submit ourselves to you now and ask that you would teach us and encourage us and nourish us. And in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. (coughs) A few weeks ago we we began uh, moving through the book of Hebrews. We have finished chapter 1. We finished chapter 1 last week, but... Chapter 1 provides an opportunity because of the, uh, the comparison of Jesus to angels. Um, angels are not a, a frequent topic of sermons. And so I thought it would be a good idea to uh, take a Sunday and just do a survey, uh, kind of Angels 101, as I've said here. Next week we're going to deal with Satan, demons, and spiritual warfare, because that's an important topic. It probably is more more important than the holy angels, but we need to have a starting point. As I said last week, the the culture in which the scriptures came, especially the New Testament, was really fascinated by angels. There there were forms of Jewish mysticism which counted heavily on, on angels, and uh, obviously within the pagan world, there were beliefs about gods and spirits. That fascination has continued into our time. Uh, it, it makes its way into the church. In our time, angels are, are uh, probably more frequently part of the New Age or occultic movements, part of witchcraft and spiritism. Um, the, the people who engage in such things are actually dealing with demonic spirits, if they're dealing with real spirits at all, but... Nobody wants to say that I'm being helped by fallen angels who are demonic in nature. So they they say I'm being helped by angels, by these just nice, good luck charm, benevolent spirits. Um, And then others, and this this includes uh, people who are in the church, cling to superstitions and and old wives' tales about angels. It's important that our beliefs always be based on what the Bible has to say that we not color outside of the lines, that we understand that what the Lord has given us is, is exactly right for our growth, for our knowledge of him, for our conversion, for our sanctification. And uh, we kind of have to discipline ourselves to stay within the boundaries of Scripture. So this morning we're going to just take a, do, do a survey. I want to give you a little bit of basic information uh, what are angels? Angels are created beings. They are made angels at the very beginning. That is kind of their 
they're species, if you will. They're not ghosts. They're not disembodied people or disembodied spirits. They're spirit beings, but they are not pure spirit. Only God is pure spirit. They have boundaries. They have bodies. They have limitations. They have personality. They have uh, experiences of joy when they rejoice over the birth of Christ. They're said to fear God. They communicate. They exhibit intelligence. They exhibit volition and, and will. So angels are, are created persons who are their own particular kind. God created in kinds, and angels are created according to their kind. Uh, the Bible uses some different designations for angels. They're called sons of the mighty. They're called sons of God. They're called Elohim, which is interesting. Elohim is a title for God. It's not properly a name for God. It is a title And it's a plural word. Way back in the Old Testament, God was using a title for himself that that, uh, was a plurality that reflected the Trinity. Uh, Angels are called holy ones. They're called morning stars in Job chapter 38. They're called princes. They're called principalities and powers. And there are other terms as well. One of the common threads, and and I know that you see this, but I'll just point it out anyway because it makes me feel better about myself. One of the common threads is that you always see them described in this way in plural forms. The one kind of exception to that is when we run across the term, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is a a phrase that's found in 29 passages in the Old Testament and New Testament. 19 of those are in the Old Testament, 10 are in the New Testament. The the New Testament designations uh, clearly describe angelic beings, created beings who are sent by God for a specific purpose, generally speaking, to communicate uh, one truth or another. They're involved, for instance, in the annunciation of Jesus' birth and things like that. In the Old Testament, it, it shifts around a little bit. Of those 19 uses, 11 are what we would call theologically a theophany or a Christophany. And it's actually pointing to a pre-incarnate appearance by by the Lord Jesus, uh, or some kind of a of a human like person like manifestation of God, I think typically that's going to be uh, the Lord. Um, let me give you an example of this in Judges chapter two. We read this: Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bohem, and he said, "I brought you up out of Egypt." Well, okay, time out. Yahweh brought the people up out of Egypt. The angel says, I led you into the land. Well, they were led by by the Lord. The angel says, it's the land which I have sworn to your fathers. Well, Yahweh made that promise to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. And the angel says, the angel of the Lord, I said, I will never break my covenant with you. No angel ever made a covenant with people. That was Yahweh. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? You have not obeyed me. We're never called to obey angels. We owe allegiance and obedience to our creator, to our God. This is an example of angel of the Lord being a theophany, a Christophany. God has come in a a human form to speak to them. 
in a, in a more direct way. It's a physical manifestation. In 11 passages in, in the Old Testament, we see that. One of the interesting ones actually is in, in Exodus chapter 3. You could turn back there. I don't have a, a slide for it. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses has taken up residence in Midian. He is a shepherd there. Moses chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is Mount Sinai. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Now, it it could be that the angel of the Lord is the attention-getting device here, and that once Moses approaches, the Lord takes over and speaks. But I think the language would say that the angel of the Lord here is the Lord, taking on some sort of a physical manifestation in order to engage with his people. Um, There are some Old Testament passages where the angel of the Lord is an angel, is a, a, a creature sent for uh, the purposes that, that God has. Um, in fact, the, the entire book of Zechariah seems to have been delivered, as was most of Revelation, by an angel to the prophet Zechariah. And we see angel of the Lord there, and we also see angel, and that appears to be a created being. So where did angels come from well they're created beings so they came from god they were created by god the time of their creation is fairly clear nehemiah 9 6 says that the lord made the heavens with all of its host Uh, host is a, a term that's used to describe angels in the beginning the lord made the heavens and the earth so somewhere in that first six days of creation god made the angels job 37 or 38 7 Calls the, where angels are called morning stars and sons of God, says that angels rejoiced at the creation of the earth. So I, I think conservatively we could say when scripture says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens includes all of those heavenly hosts. And that they then become observers to what he is doing in creation. How many angels are there? That's a great question. Thank you for asking. We can move on. Uh, We we have a verse, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. John says this, Then I looked, this is a scene in heaven, by the way. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands. The English word myriad, comes from the Greek word myria, which means 10,000. It was the highest named number within the the Greek language. Uh, Aristotle, for the sake of full disclosure, Aristotle had experimented with augmenting the word myria to try and create bigger named numbers, but he did that privately. It never became part of the, the use of language. And so just like Carl Sagan used to say billions and billions, 
without knowing exactly how many that meant, John says there are myriads of myriads. Now, just to do a little bit of the math, because I like doing this sort of thing, one myriad is 10,000. 10,000 10,000s is 100 million. I did the math in Excel. I'm pretty sure that's correct. 10,000 10,000s is 100 million. But there are multiple 10,000s. And there are multiple 10,000s. So that easily takes you into the billions and perhaps even the trillions. This is interesting as well. What we would see there is 10,000 of 10,000s and thousand of thousands. Uh, We don't use language that way. Normally, if we're going to build up, we would say hundreds and thousands. We wouldn't say thousands and hundreds. And, and so I think that there's at least the possibility that what John is intending to say here is there were tens thousands of ten thousands and thousands and thousands of the ten thousands and ten thousands, that it's meant to be this massive innumerable number. The point is that there are 1,750,385,906,000 angels out there. The point is John is saying you can't count them. So however many angels you think there might be, there's very likely many, many more. Very likely many, many more. Matthew twenty two thirty, Jesus says that angels do not marry. They are not given in marriage. That would imply that they don't reproduce. So all of the angels are created at one time. In the beginning, before the beginning, in the beginning, there is nothing but God In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the the heavens come populated as he creates them with witnesses to everything else that he does. Uh, We know, by the way, also from the book of Revelation, that when Satan sinned against God and rebelled, one-third of the angels accompanied him. However many demons there are, there's twice as many angels, because one-third is is half of two-thirds. Uh, We're going to look at spiritual warfare next week. We can move on. So what are angels like and what do they do? That finally brings us to Hebrews. Verses 5 through 14, the writer of Hebrews, comparing Jesus to angels, gives us a clue as to the nature of angels and then eventually the work of angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. So angels are not unique sons of God. They are not begotten of God. They do not have that sort of an intimate relationship with him. They are sons of God, plural, just as humanity are called sons of God in in a plural sense, as God's creation but they are not divine in their nature. Verse 6, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. So the angels are creatures. We know that they're creatures because they're commanded to worship. Only God is to be worshipped. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being God are deserving of all worship. They have the right to all worship. No creature has the right to any worship at all god worships no one the angels are commanded to worship the son and so the angels are creatures interestingly though and just kind of work with me on this 
when he brings the firstborn into the world at Jesus' incarnation, God says, let all the angels of God worship him. Well, the angels have been worshiping the triune God since the moment of their creation. That's their first and primary service to God is the acknowledgement and the worship of God. Why would they be commanded to worship Jesus now? Why would they be commanded to worship Christ in his incarnation? Because they're no longer seeing the glorious, infinite God. They're seeing an infant in a cradle. And so God underscores the deity of Christ and the creatureliness of angels by saying, don't forget, he is still your Lord. Physically, as a man, as a human being, he's a newborn baby. He has all of the helplessness, all of the needs of a newborn baby. But in his deity, he is the Lord of the universe. And you must not ever stop worshiping him. Verse 7 says that God makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That means he, they are... They are designed according to his purposes and pleasure, and they serve him according to his will. We see in verse 8 that the, the Son is eternal. We see in 9 that, that Jesus is a, a, a God who is anointed above his companions. We see in verse 10 that Jesus is creator. Angels are not eternal. Angels are not anointed above one another. Angels are not the creator. Verse 11 says that only God really remains. The heavens are the works of your hands. The foundation of the earth will perish. You remain. They will all become old like a garment. Like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. Angels have no inherent eternal life or eternal existence. They are sustained by the same God who sustains us. If God forgot about us for a moment... If God ceased to sustain us for a moment, we would cease to exist. The same is true of angels. They don't have an independent existence. To which of the angels, verse 13, has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And the answer is a rhetorical question. To none of the angels did God ever give ruling authority. They have no inherent authority. They have no right to a throne. They certainly have no right to his throne. Instead, verse 14 says, they are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. They are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. As ministering servants, they serve God first and foremost. They serve us at his pleasure. They serve whatever they serve at his pleasure. So I, I just wanted, I want to say something here, and I understand that within our culture right now with the Me Too movement, with social justice movements and things of that nature, this is a little bit provocative. I don't mean it for that. It's just going to be. Angels, in a sense, are a created servant class. They were created to serve God. They weren't created to enjoy God forever. They were created to serve God. They weren't created to be free agents who would just random and, and voluntarily offer their, their service and their worship to God. They were created as a servant class. I think we could even say properly understood that they were created as a slave class. They, there is no freedom of will. 
for them. They obviously have will. Satan chose to rebel. A third of the angels chose to go with him in that rebellion. And they were cast out of heaven. They are now under the judgment of God in perpetual warfare with him. There's no redemption for them. But their purpose in being created was to serve from from the very beginning. And they serve God in part by rendering service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. I want to look at two examples of that. The first is in 1 Kings chapter 19. While you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of background. We're we're looking at at, uh, some of the ongoing tragedy of the history of Israel. This is taking place um, somewhere between 800 and 900 B.C., before the birth of Christ. Israel has suffered from ungodliness and wickedness among their kings and among their, their leaders. One of the worst of those kings was Ahab. Ahab was um, married to a woman named Jezebel. She was a foreign-born woman who was an idol worshiper. Through Jezebel and her influence, 1 Kings 21-25 says, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did this, it says, because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. Ahab is not off the hook. He sold himself to do evil, and, and that was unheard of. But Jezebel is, is a significant influence in his life. So through Jezebel's influence within the land of Israel, Baal worship has become very common, very popular. The prophet Elijah came to a point of conflict in, in 1 Kings 18. He called the people together and he called the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, He called 400 400 prophets of Asherah. Uh, It's possible that Asherah was a foreign god. It also seems to be a a kind of altar. But there are 950, close to 1,000 false prophets, false teachers, false priests gathered up on the top of Mount Carmel. It's a low hill in the, the northwest of Israel. They had a showdown, and the the showdown is recorded in chapter 18. It's fascinating. But the the upshot of all of that was the death of almost a thousand of these false prophets. Well, chapter 19, verse 1 says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the, one, as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. I'm going to make sure that you're killed by the sword in the same way. And he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba. That's 100 miles south of Carmel. Beersheba is in Judah. He left his servant there. He went an additional day's journey into the wilderness. He came and he sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I'm not better than my father's. I don't think that he's suicidal. I think what he's saying is, Lord, I've served you to the best of my ability. I've been as faithful as I know how. 
I've been courageous in the face of opposition. I called your people to this climactic confrontation between false gods and between you, and you proved yourself to be the true God. And we have put to death almost a thousand of their priests. But nobody cares. It hasn't made a difference. I'm no better than my fathers. I can't change this people. I can't save this nation. It's done. So let me be done. Let me die. Let me be with you instead of fighting this hopeless battle. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And the angel said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And then the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So in the midst of all of this, Elijah arrives under the juniper tree and he is spent. He's physically spent. He's just run a hundred miles. I don't know if he literally ran every step, but he moved as fast as he could. At a time when people walked everywhere and they, they probably coveraged and covered an, an average of 20 miles a day just at an even pace, he might have done this in a couple of days. He's worn out from the adrenaline of, of the battle and of the fear. He is discouraged emotionally and spiritually. He's, he's got this kind of depressive exhaustion, I think, upon him, and he falls asleep. And what he needs, and I, I love this, by the way, I, I, I love the example of this. I call this the Elijah retreat. People talk about going on retreats, they're going to do this, they're going to seek the Lord, they're going to do Sometimes you just need to eat something and take a nap. Sometimes that just refreshes. Well, the Lord knows that he needs to eat. The Lord doesn't send the angel to him to give him spiritual refreshment. That's going to come 40 days later when he gets to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. That's where Moses saw the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Elijah's complaining, recognizing that the people of this land have rejected God and his word. And God doesn't say, keep going, keep pummeling, keep pounding your head against the stone. God says, come back to Sinai. Come back and be reminded. But before he does that, he's got to actually get there. And so the Lord sends the angel. The angel brings food and water. The, the language of verse 6, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones, seems to imply that the angel made it there. And even the angel coming to him as he sleeps and waking him a second time seems to say that when he laid down and slept, the angel showed up and just kept watch. Because sometimes you just need somebody there. I don't want to over Osteen this, but sometimes you need somebody there. And the Lord sent the angel. 
God could have simply caused bread and water to appear, but he chose instead to provide a physical presence for him. If you turn up to Matthew chapter 4, we're on our way to the book of Acts. But let's stop in, in Matthew chapter 4 as, as you're doing that. In Matthew 4, Jesus, of course, is driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. He's tempted for, or he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He becomes hungry and the tempter comes and he resists the tempter. And verse 11 then says, and the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Well, Jesus didn't need spiritual refreshment. Jesus never needed spiritual refreshment. He was in constant fellowship with his father. He had no sin nature that had to be replenished as ours does. But he was desperately tired and desperately hungry. And the Lord seems to do for Jesus here exactly what he did for Elijah. He sends angels to care for his physical needs. Now, interestingly enough, look up at verse 4. Jesus says to the devil, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus doesn't say man shall not live on bread. Unless you're gluten-free, maybe then it applies. But Jesus doesn't say man shall not live on bread. He says man shall not live on bread alone. God knows that we're physical creatures. And Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But not every word that proceeds on the mouth of God alone. We also need bread. God made us to need his word and to hunger for his word. God made us physical creatures. We need food and we need drink and we need sleep. We need things that maintain our physical life. He knows that. He doesn't resent it. He doesn't look at us as as being low creatures because of that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made man out of the dust of the ground, and he put the man in the garden to tend it. And what's the first thing God talks to Adam about? Food. You can eat everything except this, but the first topic of conversation is food. So man shall not live by bread alone. We need food. God knows that. He doesn't resent it. And he meets our needs in all sorts of ways. Let's move to Acts chapter 12. You see, the, the second example of angelic intervention is you're turning a little bit of background. In Acts chapter 12, the church is several years old. The gospel is now spread into Samaria. It's made its way north to Damascus and into Antioch, and it's beginning to spread out kind of slowly. Persecution at this point has become very, very intense. It's part of what drove the expansion. King Herod, that's Herod Agrippa I, that'd be the grandson of the the, the Herod who... Uh, had the the infants killed when Jesus was born, had some followers of Christ arrested. I ended up in Matthew 12. Acts 12.1, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, the apostle, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. That's the Passover time. 
When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people for trial, probably for execution, just like he did with James, the brother of John. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer was being made for him fervently by the church to God. On the very night... When Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between, between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Just like Elijah was asleep, Peter is asleep. Elijah is clearly asleep because of mental and emotional, physical exhaustion. That could be why Peter's asleep. But, but given the fact that Peter saw his Lord crucified, and then raised from the dead. He's seen miracles. He's already been delivered from, from prison once with John and with the other apostles. I, I think Peter's probably sleeping here because he's at peace. He'd heard the Lord say right before the Lord ascended that when he was old, people would take him in a way that he didn't want to go and he would be put to death. He, he told Peter how he was going to die. So if this is his time, Jesus knows about it. And he might have just been saying, I'm not old. This is not my time. I don't know. That he's asleep between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door watching over the prison. And then behold, an angel of the Lord, again, a created angel, not Jesus, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. I, I love this. I, my, my phone charges in a wireless charger and it's kind of, I don't know, five or six feet from the bed, but it faces out. And if I get a text or something and the phone lights up in the middle of the night, it wakes me up. An angel shows up. Peter's dead asleep. He's like Jesus in the boat. I just thought of that. Peter's dead asleep. So the angel strikes Peter in the side. A strike doesn't imply hand. It means hit. So I think the angel kind of went, get up. And, and he wakes Peter up and he says to Peter, gird yourself. That means get dressed. Put on your sandals. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he leads Peter out the various rabbit warrens of this prison. He goes past the first guard and he goes past the second guard. Verse 10 says, verse 9 says, Peter thinks it's a dream. He went out and continued to follow and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. I'm, I'm having a dream. I had, a, I had a, two or three weeks ago, I had a dream that Grace and I were in South Africa waiting for Peter and Kathy Tarantall to show up. We, we were just out in the savanna area with some trees around and animals, and we were just waiting for them. When I woke up, I was utterly confused. It was one of the most real dreams I've ever had. Peter is convinced this is a dream. Well, when they'd gone past the first guard and the second guard, verse 10 says, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city. The gate opened for them by itself. That works in a dream, right? And then they went out and along one street. So it seems to be they, they, they came out and, and actually started out into the city, maybe, maybe made a turn. And immediately the angel departed from him. The angel vanished. And then Peter came to himself. He kind of realized 
I'm not asleep. This is real. I'm free. And he says, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. In a similar way to Elijah, the Lord could have met Peter's need and delivered him simply by picking him up like he picked up Philip and translated him. The Lord could have simply caused Peter to wake up, opened up all the doors. Maybe there could have been an earthquake like Acts 16 with Paul and Silas in Philippi. This time, the Lord chose to send an angel. And Peter saw this this man. Peter doesn't say, I saw an angel. Luke says that. Peter may well have thought, well, I don't know what's going on here. There's, uh, he might have figured out, well, I'm dreaming. Maybe that's why he thought he was dreaming is, well, this is clearly an angel. I must be asleep. God meets our needs. He can be trusted to meet our needs. And he has the right and the freedom to use any means that he chooses to do that. And there are times, it's, it's actually a very few times... Uh, I, th- I think one, one author that I read said that there's only 27 identifiable contacts in the Bible with an angel and a human being for whatever purpose. It's not common. But he can certainly do something like that. Before Linda and I were married, we'd gone to a, a little church in, uh, in Southern California just for a few months. And we were, we were heading back home on a on a Sunday evening, we had, I had about 40 miles to drive or 50 miles to drive to get to Linda's house. And we were, we were on the freeway heading north, uh, just a few miles out of downtown Los Angeles. The freeway just went right up through there. And I was in the fast lane, was in my folks' uh, Jeep Cherokee. And as I was driving along, the accelerator pushed back, pushed my foot back. And the Jeep slowed down. And so I pulled over into the slow lane. It's Southern California, so there's a fair amount of traffic. I pulled over in, not the slow lane, but the middle lane, and, and then the accelerator kind of loosened up, and I was able to push down, and I got back in the fast lane and went a little bit further, and then it pushed back again. Got into the middle lane, and then it eased up, and I got back in the fast lane, and then it happened a third time. And so I got in the middle lane and just stayed there, thought if it's breaking down, at least I want to be able to get to the shoulder. And a few moments later, a, a, a big van, like a UPS van or a bread truck, went sailing by in the fast lane. And we came around a corner, and about a quarter mile in front of us, we saw the, the van skidding on its side. It had come around a corner too fast, tried to change lanes, whatever, and flipped. And, and caused several accidents. And because of where we were, I was able to get over in the shoulder quickly because people now are locking up their brakes trying to avoid all of this. We were able to get out and, and help. It didn't occur to me till later that there's nothing in the, the linkage with an accelerator to push back. There's nothing in the linkage of an accelerator to push forward. It just sits there. Your foot is the machine that moves it this way, and there's a spring that comes back. So maybe I imagined it. Maybe it was just some weird mechanical thing going on. That's, I'm stepping in glue here, by the way. Maybe there was some weird mechanical thing going on 
with the car. Or maybe there is an angel pushing my foot back, getting me out of danger, getting getting Linda out of danger, put it that way, getting Linda out of danger. I had precious cargo. I don't know. I I really don't know. I, I don't even have a a strong dominant belief that it was this or that. I, I'm firmly convinced that the Lord spared us from being involved. If, if we hadn't been slowed down, we would have been where the van turned over when it turned over. Just slowing down a few miles an hour backed us up enough where we weren't involved. I don't know. I, I wish that I could tell you that, that God will always send angels to you whenever you're in, in some sort of physical need or need deliverance or, or, or have something going on. That's not true. He doesn't always do that. Even in scripture, he only seems to rarely do that. But we can take this away. We can take this lesson away. God is a God who who takes care of his people. And there are times that he allows us to go through circumstances we would rather not go through. And there are also times that he delivers us from circumstances and we have no idea that those circumstances were even around to begin with. So interesting to watch YouTube videos and to see somebody walking along the street and they stop to to go into a doorway and just as they do, some car comes flying down the sidewalk and misses them. And how often that happens. I think it's very rare that we have the kind of experience that I did where something happens to, to kind of rescue us from a circumstance, but the something that happened really can't be easily explained. We have a God who cares for his people. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. If you're going to memorize any portion of this verse, make sure that you memorize without knowing it. The point isn't for us to become fascinated or obsessed with angels. The point is for us to trust in our God and to know that he has an infinite number of means to care for his people. And that might very well include using angelic beings to do that. Father, as we kind of contemplate this, as we think about putting our trust in you, the circumstances that we face, we we know that you have delivered us spiritually from hell because of what Jesus did on the cross, because you have granted us faith in that. You've caused us to be born again. You filled us with your spirit. You've given us a hunger for your word and a knowledge of your word. You've given us the stubborn faith that keeps hanging on even when circumstances are hard and life is hard. Lord, you've, you've met our eternal needs. There's so much abusive teaching today about temporary needs that we might be tempted to just want to completely leave that alone. But the truth is, you meet our temporary needs too. You created us in such a way that we would need a Savior because of our sin, and then you provided that Savior. And what Jesus did, he did for all time. And you created us in such a, such a way that we need food through the day. And you've provided for us in the earth that you created. You've provided for us through our ability to grow food and identify food. And and Lord, through Jesus, you multiplied food for people. You provided food for 
Israel and water for them in the wilderness. You fed Elijah. You ministered to the Lord Jesus when he was finished with his fasting and temptation. And Lord, you can meet our needs any way that you choose to do so. Would you let our eyes and cause our eyes not to be on the angelic, not to be on the supernatural, not to be on what the, what the means are that you use. Would you grant us the privilege of having our eyes fixed on you and knowing that your love for us covers every aspect of our lives, the eternal aspects as well as the momentary aspects. We thank you for your care. We thank you for your tenderness. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.